Today's scripture reading is 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28, which can be found on page 988 of the Black Pew Bibles. If you, if you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28 on page 988. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good in one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The word of the Lord. We uh, continue in our series in First and Second Thessalonians, the two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young church in Thessalonica, and he is teaching them about some things that maybe they have missed before or needed to be corrected on. It's also incredibly encouraging to them. This is a good church in Thessalonica. They're growing. They're sharing their faith. The whole area is affected by their witness. Um, and so he's trying to encourage them. And so we get to the point in First uh, Thessalonians at the very end of the letter where Paul just describes in kind of a bullet point way uh, what Christian community should look like, how we are to live together in the church and love each other well. This is a passage full of practical instructions ending with a benediction at the end of the letter. Uh, it reads <clears throat> sort of like a memo, sort of like a bullet point list. It's just, I think he's just trying to fit in all these different ideas as he is about to wrap up his letter. Uh, I want to maintain the unity of this section because I think it all goes together, verses 12 through the end, but I, I'm going to take two weeks on it. So I was trying to think, how do I impress Marco uh, <laughs> this Sunday? And I... Uh, well, I don't think I'm going to impress you with this. So I, I'm going to take the same text, and we're going to spend two weeks on it and ho hopefully point out different things through it. But I really wanted to maintain the unity of this passage because I, I think Paul just gives us a bunch of different instructions, and he wants us to see all of it together so we can apply it. And, of course, different things would apply to different people. Uh, there are 17 consecutive commands uh, in verses 12 through 22, and then three more to follow at the very end, uh, where he kind of wraps it up. So even, even though he's already given them 17, he's got three more he's going to fit in at the end. He wants to show us 
how we are to live in very practical terms in the church while we wait for the Lord's return. So let me outline the whole passage, and it's the, the whole outline is in your notes. I'm only really going to probably spend time on the first two points and touch on the last, but we'll use the same outline next week as well. So in verses 12 and 13, we find instructions concerning the leaders of the church, the elders, their responsibilities and the responsibility of, the, of those they are leading. And then verses 14 and 15 are about the people of the church. That's relationships amongst us, the types of relationships that we are to cultivate with each other. Verses 16, 17, and 18 deal with an attitude, the attitude of the church that should, the church should have, or you can think of it in terms of a spiritual posture, and that's about joy and prayer and thanksgiving. And then verses 19 through 22 focus on the church's attention to the Holy Spirit, and specifically with this issue of the prophecies, what are we to do with prophecies in the church? And finally, in verses 23 and 24, uh, we are given the description of the future of the church, very hopeful future that the church has at the coming of Christ. And then, of course, the letter ends with three more bullet points specific to Paul's relationship to the church in Thessalonica and his customary ending highlighting the grace of Christ. So that's our passage. It's in your notes, and we'll do the best we can trying to apply it to our church specifically. Uh, as I was studying this passage this week, you know, I thought, how strange must it look to a non-church person? <laughs> you know, it's so easy for us. If you're part of the church, and most of you, you know, grew up in the church, and you're here seven days a week sometimes, you know, you, you get so used to how church is and how people interact with each other. But imagine if you just didn't know any of this and how a person that is not a church person, not familiar with the life of the church, what they would think of us and what they would think of a list like this in this text. You know, Paul gives these commands, right, these instructions, and they're, they're so countercultural. He talks about respecting church leaders. This is you know, other people in your community, and says, recognize them, respect them, listen to them. It says, do not pay back to those who wrong you, so don't retaliate. Man, that's a weird idea. Always rejoice and always be grateful. How is that possible? That doesn't make any sense that we would always be happy. We would always be thankful. It says, do not despise, despise prophecies. What is that? You know, when you read that list... As a non-church person, so much of that sounds odd. And, and it sounds kind of mechanical. It sounds kind of like, okay, we'll do this, 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 and the 17 things. You know, Just make sure you write them down. Check, check it if you do it. These are some strange instructions. And so I was thinking about that. I was reminded of an analogy. It was attributed to a, a preacher during the Reformation uh, he, he was talking about a man traveling in an open country, and he saw people dancing from afar. He couldn't hear the music. He just saw people dancing. And their movements seemed so strange to him. He thought maybe they were mad. But as he came closer, he could hear the music to which they were dancing. And once he heard the music, their movements made sense. He found that to be art, which before he thought madness. 
This is a great picture of how the church is perceived from outside. If you just look at us and, and, and from afar and you say, what are they doing? Well, they get together regularly. They're very big on meetings. They do stuff for their children that is a lot of instruction, a lot of discipline. You know, they write their own songs. They don't like the other songs. They just write their own. And they, they have this book that everybody carries around in a, in a nice leather-bound uh, uh, case. I mean, you think about us and think about how we're perceived. And none of that makes sense, really, unless you hear the music. Unless you know what drives us, unless you know what animates, animates us, what gives us life. And this passage is no different. If you just read these as instructions only, and you just say, well, I just got to do this, all these 17 things plus three at the end, and one of them, by the way, is kissing people, so we'll get to that. <laughs> you just read that and you say, what is all this about? But if you read it carefully, and especially if you come into the church you realize that these are movements, dance movements, that are accompanied by music. There's a song that's playing in the background. And sometimes it gets louder. Sometimes it's soft in the background. Sometimes you can barely hear it. But it's that song, it's that music that actually controls what we do with our lives. The behavior of Christians only makes sense if we understand the gospel that shapes it. Yes, Christians are to live lives that are distinctly different. Yes, we are to live moral lives. We are to be ethical. We are to be humble. We are to be wise. All those things are true. But the moral and religious and communal norms are the particular dance. They're, they're dance moves that are governed by the music of what God has done in Christ, what He is doing now by His Holy Spirit, the very presence of God in our midst, the, the love of Christ, the transformational power of the Spirit, the unity of the church in the gospel, that's the music that moves us. Now, if you don't have that reality, I don't know how helpful these instructions are going to be to you. I think often they would come across as oppressive, things that I have to do and I can't do them. But if you have the gospel, if you have the reality of God and his grace in your life, if you know what he's done for you in Christ, if you know Christ, actually, if the Holy Spirit is working in you, transforming you, then you are happy to do these things. You want to do them because now you've been changed. Let me tell you another story before I get into the text. I remember, you know, I grew up in Ukraine, as most of you know, and, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't have access to uh, American music that you all had when you were growing up. And, you know, you could get some things, and as I was getting interested in music in my teen years, you know, there's certain choice things that came my way, a lot of Rolling Stones, a lot of Led Zeppelin, which are British bands I'm recognizing. It's not even American, but some American bands too. And I remember just really, it seemed so different. It seemed just such a different world. And a lot of my friends were getting into it and we were, you know, I was in a band for a time. So all of that stuff was happening. And then I remember my, my friend uh, brought me some records. And those were actual records. And the children don't know what they are. <laughs> but in the next generation, they will know because they're coming back. 
And I remember he brought me a set of records, and there were Motown records, the Motown hits. I remember for the first time listening to that. Now, you may not have had that experience because you grew up with it, but I remember the first time turning it on and just one hit after another after another. It was just such a weird experience. It's just totally new music to me. And I remember my friend who bought the records to me said, and he was kind of laid back, cerebral guy who played guitar in our band. And, and he said, he's like, he's like, I'm not much of a dancer, he said, but when I listen to these tunes, he's like, I can't help it. And I think of, of the same effect that the gospel has on us. Maybe you're not much of a dancer, right? Maybe you're not much of a moral person. Maybe you're not much of a rule keeper. Maybe you're not much of a communal person and church person. But when the gospel gets into your heart, when you, you, you recognize the beauty of what the Lord has done for you, when you get to know the Holy Spirit on a relational way, experiential way, your life changes. And, and as it changes, you become a dancer. You become a Christian. You become a person that starts to appreciate and embrace things that to all Christians everywhere have always been valuable and meaningful. All right, so let's get into our text before I tell you more stories about my childhood in Soviet Ukraine. But we are looking at this text, and let's look first at the leaders. So that's the first two verses, 12 and 13. And we're looking at how Paul describes the role of the leaders and the role of us who are to submit to them. He says in verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, Paul wants to set up the right relationship between the leaders of the young Thessalonian church and its congregation. Now, most of these instructions, I think, we can apply to any leader in the church, but specifically, Paul has in mind the elders. Now, if you read the New Testament, every New Testament church was governed by elders. It's very clear in the early history of the church that the leaders of every community in every different city were called elders. Sometimes they were called bishops or overseers. But those terms are interchangeable in the New Testament. You basically had one office that was sort of the pastor, elder, teacher, overseer, shepherd office in the church. And then you had deacons. Deacons were primarily concerned with the physical needs of the church. They were doing works of mercy. They were caring for the widows, those kinds of things. But the elders were over the spiritual health of the church. Now you can read in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the qualifications for these elders. Not, not everybody was supposed to be an elder. Only those who were called by God, appointed by the Holy Spirit, affirmed by the church, those who had specific gifts and, and reputation and godly maturity, there were elders in the church. And so their primary responsibility, if we can summarize elder in one word, and this is how, by the way, we see it here at Chatham, it's shepherd. Elders are shepherds. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, describes what elders are supposed to be doing. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, 
as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, this is a description of what elders in the church do. We're supposed to shepherd the flock, the flock that God gave us, people that are here, people that God has blessed us with and put us in position of care and authority over them. And the two main ways that elders do that is through prayer and the ministry of the Word. That comes from Acts 6, when the apostles in Jerusalem uh, decided to appoint deacons to take care of the physical needs of the church. They said, we want to make sure that we commit our time to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, this is the biblical foundation for the elders in the church. They're shepherds. They're appointed by God under certain qualifications. They're shepherding the flock, overseeing it, but they're doing that through the Word, through Scripture, and through prayer. That's what the Bible teaches about elders. Now, here at Chatham, we currently have seven elders, although the number changes from year to year, but there's always a plurality of elders here. They are John Gobble, Kevin Hartman, Jay Hotchkiss, Mark Maxwell, Kendall Walton, Pastor Josh Govier, and myself. Now, Josh and I are called pastors because we're on staff, we're full-time, we commit our whole work in life to eldering, to shepherding, but all the elders are serving in exactly the same capacity. Pastors are elders, and elders can properly be called pastors. You can go to any of the elders, lay elders here, and call them pastor. It's appropriate. Pastor simply means shepherd in Latin. So it would not be inappropriate to refer to all elders as pastors. Now, each elder shepherds the people by using prayer and scripture. Now, Josh and I have the privilege of doing that in sort of a more official capacity. Every week, Josh teaches the teens. I teach here on Sunday mornings, and of course, there are other numerous Bible studies and things that we do. But all elders are exercising that same responsibility by using Scripture to influence people. Many of our elders lead small groups or Bible studies where they're actually teaching from the Word. All of our elders are engaged in, in multiple conversations and relationships where they're bringing the Word of God to bear on particular problems and questions that people have. They are counselors. They are encouragers. They come into messy situations and provide wisdom through God's Word. And they pray. They pray. Now, every Sunday you, you see an elder come up here and during pastoral prayer in the, in the bulletin, as we call it, there's a prayer that's offered for the church. Not only for the church, but certainly for the people here. We keep a uh, a lot we pay attention to what's happening and, and what particular areas we need to we need to cover in prayer. These are not unprepared prayers. When an elder comes up here, they have prayed about praying for you before they pray. They have prepared. Now, much shepherding happens relationally and informally, as each elder does it in their own way, gifted differently as we are. Now, I wanted to give you a biblical context for what elders do because it's not understood necessarily in all circles of church, but I also wanted to give you how it's practically working out here. These are the men that God has gifted to bless you, to serve you. 
And I encourage you to make use of them. Not only respect them, not only recognize them as elders, but go to them. Allow them to care for your souls. Now here's how Paul, in our text, describes what the elders are doing. He's given us three kind of three phrases here to describe what elders are supposed to do, what a good elder does. One, he says, they labor among you. They labor among you. Now the idea here is that they work hard for the benefit of the people in the church. A good elder works hard. I'm reminded of Alexander McLaren, a 19th century Baptist preacher, he was known as, his nickname was the Prince of Expositors, which I don't think it sounds that good, Prince of Expositors. And I've realized that the reason they called him that is because the Prince of Preachers was already taken because it was the same time that Spurgeon was preaching. And so McLaren only got the Prince of Expositors, but good preacher nonetheless. And uh, he, the story is told about him that when he would go and prepare his sermons in the morning and he worked in his home office, he would actually take his slippers off and he would put on work boots, outside construction type of work boots. Why? Because he wanted to feel like he's doing something difficult and strenuous by preparing a sermon for his congregation. I mean, what, what a great image, right, of a pastor, of an elder saying, I'm not taking this lightly. I need to, I need to work hard to give something to my congregation. I, I did an internship when I was just starting in the ministry at uh, the Chapel Evangelical Free Church in, in St. Joseph, Michigan. And the <clears throat> senior pastor there was, was Phil Bubar, and he's just a good, good pastor, and I learned a lot from him. And I remember we went to a conference, and I'm just, I'm just tagging along. He's just taking me wherever he goes. I just want to experience what, what's going on. So I go to this conference with him. We shared a, a hotel room. And I remember late at night, after all the sessions are done, he's there, the light, the light is on, he's on his bed, and he's going through his cards, his prayer cards. And he's praying for his people, by names, by groups of people. He's praying for the teachers in the church. And he's praying for the mothers in the church. To me, it was, it was such an impressive thing to witness. Not, nobody was watching him. You know, it's, it wasn't for show. But for a young minister, it was, it was very impressive to see, okay, here's a pastor. He, he has a long day already, but he's going to spend these, these last maybe half hour of his day praying for his people. I remember a story about a, a Puritan pastor who would, his wife would find him in the middle of the night outside praying for his congregation, couldn't sleep. Just go outside and pray for his people. And he, she would bring him a coat because it was cold. You know, you hear stories like that. That's, that's an elder. You know, that's somebody that cares for his people. It's, this is hard work. It's not to be taken lightly. So when I think about our elders here, they do work hard for you. They do. Now, I know them. I know how much they care. I know how much sleep they lose over some of you. I know how much they love you. So when you think about them, respect them, recognize them, trust them, let them lead you. This church historically has been blessed with good elders. You can't say that about every church, but this church has had this history 
of strong, humble, godly leadership, pastors and elders, lay elders as well. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great gift, and we should praise God for that. So encourage your elders. I, Josh and I, we, we get a lot of encouragement from you because we're more visible, and, and, you know, you, and we, know, we know you love us. We know you appreciate us. But other elders, those lay elders, encourage them. Tell them how much you appreciate what they do for you. They work hard. Now, the second phrase that Paul uses is, he says, the elders are over you in the Lord. They're over you in the Lord. Elders are to exercise spiritual authority over the flock. Again, from somebody outside of the church, that sounds crazy. (laughs) You're going to put yourself under some guy's authority, tell you what to do in life? Why would you do that? But if these are good elders, if these are people called by God to care for the flock of God, chosen by Him, why would you not trust them to exercise influence over you, good influence, good authority over you? And also remember that this authority is not theirs. It's not ours. It's in the Lord. It's delegated from Christ to us. We're not coming on our own authority because we're smart. We're coming because the Lord has entrusted something to us. And then the final phrase to describe elders is admonish. The elders are to admonish you. Now, the word admonish refers to instruction aimed at change. Hmm. This is is not just teaching information. This is correcting doctrinal and moral errors. Part of the role of an elder is to help the people change, to help them grow in Christ. That's a serious business. Uh, you know, we elders, we think about a passage like Hebrews 13, 17 that puts it this way. It's a sobering passage for us to read. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give will have to have to give an account. Keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Account to God. This is the responsibility. This is why we want to admonish some of us. Because we see a person not growing. We see a person struggling. We want to come alongside and help them. This is not a frivolous exercise of authority. This comes from the desire to see you grow. To see you become who God wants you to become. And we feel the weight of that. We feel that God has placed us in that role. So that he would use us to help you grow. So be responsive to that. Be responsive when an elder comes to you and offers advice or offers a rebuke. Be responsive to that. Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher, uses an illustration of what what it means to be an elder. He says it's like a servant of the king who was given this mission to take a treasure that belongs to the king from somewhere far away and take it through the enemy territory and bring it into the palace. And so he's entrusted with this treasure and is running and hiding from the enemy and fighting the enemy all to bring this treasure back to the palace of the king. Your souls are our treasures. God has entrusted you to us so that we would keep it. We keep it safe. We would nourish you. We would help you so we can present you one day to the Lord, blameless in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, these are the dance moves. The elders care for you, they shepherd you, they're over you with a, a certain kind of authority from the Lord. They pray for you, they teach you, they take it seriously, they work hard for you, they admonish you sometimes. And you respond with respect and acceptance and obedience to that. But we also hear the music behind these dance moves. In verse 12, Paul says that the leaders are over the church in the Lord. In the Lord, meaning in Christ. Their authority comes from Christ, but also their whole realm of exercise of this, of this work is in Christ. Is in the realm of what Christ has accomplished and how he treats his church. We hear the melody of the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders, and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he says, You shepherd the flock, take care of the flock, because these are the people that God has purchased with his blood. Jesus spilled his blood so you would shepherd these people. That's the melody in the back of the, the dance. That's the, melody, that's the song that we hear, that the great shepherd laid his life down for his sheep. The shepherd that came and for the sake of his sheep sacrificed himself, spilled his blood, so that he would create a new community, a different community, a strange community of people who love him and love each other. The elders care for the flock because the people are precious to Christ who died for the church. The elders love the people because Christ loves them. And the people recognize and respect their elders because they see their ministry as an expression of Christ's care and love for them. Listen to the music of the gospel as you learn the dance steps as an elder or as a member of the church. Now, let's move, let's move on to the second point, and that's about the people of the church. So we talked about the leaders. Now it's the people and how we all relate to one another. Peace is the dominant theme here. Verse 13, Paul says, Be at peace among yourselves. And then the other bookend of the section in verse 23, God is called the God of peace. So we are to be at peace with each other because our God is a God of peace. It's He who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ. And we are now to be reconciled to one another. Now those two realities are, are interconnected because God is a God of peace who's reconciled us to Himself. We are to be reconciled with one another. Verse 26 instructs the Thessalonian believers to greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, this seems a bit strange to us at our time. But at their time, a kiss was a symbol of peace, a symbol of reconciliation and unity. So when you would kiss somebody, not on the lips, on the cheek or on the forehead, when you do that, you're expressing your commitment to them, your relational commitment to them, and unity with them, and a relationship with them. So Paul is saying, you guys do that. To, for that to be a visible reminder of how we're all connected through Christ together. To greet each other with a holy kiss in the church in that time meant to affirm 
that all believers are at peace with each other. There's a visible, tangible reminder that Christ is their peace. Now, we have other ways of doing that, right? Embrace somebody, hug them, shake their hand, say hello, make eye contact, do those things that, that affirm the person and saying, we're, we're together. We're not separate individuals just, just being in the same physical space. No, we're, we're connected to each other through Christ. We are to have peace together because Christ is our peace. I hesitate telling the story a little bit, but when I was in Ukraine and we were ministering, we were starting a church in a particular part of the city. And we went and visited all the different churches in the area just to get to know the other ministries and, and see if we're not uh, infringing on any existing ministries. We didn't want to do that. We went to a very conservative Pentecostal church. Now, in Ukraine during the Soviet time, here's another Soviet story. Here you go. Didn't take me long, but in Ukraine, during the Soviet times, the church was persecuted, and many churches went underground, specifically the Baptist and Pentecostal churches were very isolated, and they've sort of developed their own cultures, even in isolation from each other. So if you went to a particular church, you just kind of knew how things were, but if you were not from the church, you wouldn't know how to do things. Well, one of the things that you didn't know how to do is how to kiss each other, and they all kissed each other because, frankly, Scripture commands it. And they would read passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, and they would say, well, here we go. And they would kiss each other. But they would kiss each other in a particular way that, was, that developed in that particular denomination and congregation. So when we went to visit all these churches, we were welcomed as brothers in Christ. It was three of us, three missionaries. And, and, and I remember there was three of us and the pastor of that church. And we're all taking turns kissing him because he wants to greet us with a holy kiss, to accept us in Christ, in peace. Very, very great gesture. None of us three knew how to kiss him. We had a Baptist in our midst that kissed a certain way, the way he grew up. And we had me that just had no church background. I didn't know what, what was going on. I was the last one in line. So we had the first, the Baptist, he went to the other side. He went the wrong side. So that didn't work. And then we had another guy who went, he was like, oh, I'm going to go the other side. So he did, he did that, and that didn't quite work well, because there's a handshake involved, too. It's, it's complicated. And then I'm the last one, and we just awkwardly held each other, <laughs> just for 30 seconds or so, because we didn't know how to do it properly. Now, how is this, this peace practiced in the church? Now, in verse 14... We are told to treat different people differently and be patient with everyone. I love these short descriptions of the church where Paul just says, this is some categories, you know, just make sure you see people differently and just love them differently. But then overall, just be patient with everybody. If you don't know what to do, just be patient with everybody. And so we are told that uh, we are not to retaliate with evil. Somebody wrongs us in the church, we're not to wrong them back. We're not to pay them back. So that's the substance of how peace is achieved. And I'll come back to that in a second. But look at how Paul introduces it. In verse 14, he says, We urge you, brothers. We urge you, brothers. He's addressing the Christians in Thessalonica as brothers. Now, this word is inclusive of men and women. It's actually a term that 
could easily be translated as brothers and sisters. And it's repeated five times in our short passage. Five times in this section, Paul is calling people he's writing to brothers. Why? Why are all these, these strange instructions cushioned in the familial language? The reason is because we are a family. <laughs> because Paul sees the church as a family. We're brothers and sisters together. This is how the church is to be understood. You know, I, I was reading, doing some reading on this and, and re- realizing that in secular businesses and Christian businesses, I would assume, there's often family language that's used in the workplace. Sometimes your boss would tell you, you know, we're like, we're like family. You know, let's go do a family picnic and, and let's, let's stick around. Let's, let's celebrate birthdays. What's interesting is that that trend of defining the workplace as, as family, as sort of a home, second home, is actually, is actually moving away. It's, it's, it's disappearing from the, the secular workplace. The reason is because people are realizing that we can talk about being a family, but there's going to come a time when I have to fire you, and what do you do then with all this language? What about layoffs that just inevitably come? You know, what if I have to cut your hours? How do I explain that? I can't say you're my family and at the same time treat you inconsiderate of your well-being. And so the, the trend right now seems to be they're moving to this language of team. We're a team. Well, that's different. And so, in fact, businesses are looking at sports teams and saying, well, why is the New England Patriots, or why are they so successful? Well, because they function as a team. They actually don't care so much about the individual. They just evaluate somebody's skills. They take what they need, and then when it's no longer valuable, then they cut them. They don't sign these huge contracts because they don't want a relational commitment. Now, it's interesting how that is reframing how people think about their workplace. Now, unfortunately, and I'm really, really bothered by that, that the language of family is disappearing from church as well. And in many churches, the language of team is prevalent. I mean, there are a lot of church leaders that talk about church as an organization that has to be effective. You know, if, you, if you're not on the bus, you know, you got to get off the bus. The, the language, the business language that's used of saying that you have to be in agreement with everything. You have to use your gifts just this way. And if you don't have those gifts, you're, you're useless to us. I mean, that's the stuff you hear from church leaders where effectiveness is prioritized over relationships. Let me just say very clearly here, that is not the language of the New Testament. That's not how Paul sees the church. He's not talking about effectiveness. He's not talking about trimming the fat in the company. He, just, he doesn't use that language. But he does use the language of brothers and sisters. Do you see your church as your family? It's so important. I, I know it's not glamorous. I know it's not sexy to think of church as family. It's much cooler to think we're the New England Patriots. <laughs> much cooler, right? But that's not who we are. We're a family. And with family comes all sorts of dysfunction. And we are to be okay with that. Now, look at how Paul is describing that. He says, admonish the idol. Now, the idol is not necessarily those who don't work, even though I think that's part of it. And he's going to address the work issue in the second letter to the Thessalonians. But it's people who are undisciplined or disruptive or 
those who are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. I heard somebody translate it as truants. You know, this kind of sounds funny to me, but it's people who are not there when they need to be there. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. In the military formation, they're not marching with everybody else. Now, what do we do with people like that? Well, the language of team says, cut them, right? What good are they? But the language of family says, admonish them, work with them, help them. We are to encourage the faint-hearted. You can translate it as the small of soul. Small of soul. People who are discouraged, people who struggle easily internally. Why should we bother? Spend time on somebody like that? Business world tells us, don't bother. Let them be. Let them work it out on their own. But the family language of the New Testament says, encourage them. Encourage them. Engage intentionally with people who are struggling. And then help the weak. Help the weak. Spiritually or physically weak or disadvantaged in any way. As a church, as a family, we're supposed to help each other. Now this means that we are to be committed to each other like family through our struggles, through our problems. We're to patiently serve each other. And when we sin against each other, I mean, this is the most revolutionary idea here. When we sin against each other, when we wrong each other, we're not to retaliate. But we're to be patient and always seek to do good to one another and even to everyone outside the church. Isn't that interesting that the Bible does not instruct us to get rid of the weak among us and to build a strong and effective organization so we can do more work for the Lord? That's not the biblical mindset. In fact, according to the Bible, being patient with each other, watching one another change and grow, is the work. That's the work. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it's a great quote, he said, every Christian community must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but also that the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of fellowship. I think he's absolutely right. It's not only that when I'm weak, I need somebody who's stronger than me to help me. I need that. But it's the person who's helping me. They need to be helping me. You see, they need to exercise their gifts. They need to get out of their own mind and, and focus on someone else and serve in love and patience of someone else. And if we don't have that balance, our fellowship will die. Our relationships will revert to worldly relationships. So what is the music in the background of this dance of relationships within the church. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul finishes this letter and many other letters. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So after this long conversation about, conversation about community and family, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Because Jesus is patient with us. So when he commands us to be patient with everybody, believe me, he knows what he's talking about. He's patient with me. Jesus does not repay evil for evil. It is he who told us to turn the other cheek because he actually did turn the other cheek. 
And more than that, took the death on the cross so he could bless evildoers. So he could bless sinners and forgive sinners. This is the grace that's underneath all our decisions. That's inside all our relationships. Jesus admonishes the idle. Jesus encourages the faint-hearted. He helps the weak. Oh, what a Savior we have. That we can look to him and say, this is how we are to build our relationships. And we're not going to do it just on our own, in our own strength. But he himself is with us because this is his body. These are his people. Let me finish very briefly. We're going to take communion in a second. But I want to finish on the future of the church to give you just a little bit. We'll come back to it next week, but just a little bit of a picture of what God is going to do with us. In verses 23 and 24, this is the great benediction. We've been using that every Sunday that we've been in these letters. At the end of the service, we'll use it again today. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. What is the promise here? God speaks to us through Paul. And he says, I will present you blameless when Jesus returns. I will continue to sanctify you with my spirit. So you will grow, you will change, you will be transformed. And so when Jesus comes back, you will be made perfect in his sight. Practically perfect. I mean, it's an amazing promise. I don't know how he's going to deal with some of us. I have to tell you. I don't know how he's going to get some of us to that point, but he will. Because he says he will and he is faithful. And just as that we have no doubts, he says he will surely do it. He will absolutely do it. He will definitely do it. And so as we... As we look at the church and you struggle with relationships and you struggle with elders and you struggle with submission and you struggle with people who just don't want to change, like all of that, all the family dysfunction that we're a part of, we got to remind ourselves that he will continue to work with us and he will continue to change us. And when Jesus returns, we will be made blameless and perfect because his reputation is at stake, because it is he who is faithful. And he will not fail us because he cannot fail himself. And he will do all of that by grace. Not because we are so working hard at our sanctification, but because he will, he's committed to us and he will bring what he started to completion. I'll, I'll end with these lines from a hymn and then we'll, we'll come, come to the table and we'll continue next week, okay? So that's a weird first part of the sermon, okay? The old hymn says, Though afflicted, tempest-tossed, comfortless a while thou art, do not think thou canst be lost. Thou art graven on my heart. All thy walls I will repair. Thou shalt be rebuilt anew. And in thee it shall appear what a God of love can do.